Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to our profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. I'm an architect in Los Angeles running my own small practice and teaching at Cal Poly Pomona. I started this podcast out of a curiosity to hear more stories and learn strategies about how women are succeeding and leading in architecture. Today's guest is Laura O'Neill, chair of the Landmarks Commission in Santa Monica and a senior architectural historian at GPA Consulting. Laura graduated from the MARC 1 program at Cal Poly Pomona, and actually, we've known each other for about 12 years now as we went through the program together. In this episode, we will gain some insight into Laura's job as an architectural historian. We'll hear about how she deals with the public, what her management style is like, and learn a little bit about her firm culture. She'll give us a little bit of career advice even, and talk about burnout and motivation. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, when you were studying at Cal Poly, I mean, is this what you thought it would be? Well, I didn't think that I would be in consulting, which I am. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought I would be working at a design firm, but on historic buildings. I still work on historic buildings, and I work on great projects, but I consult on them. Mm-hmm. You know, I And I do things I never thought I would do, a lot of things. You know, we offer a very wide range of services in historic preservation, and some of them are just strictly regulatory. Um, you know, I work on big transportation projects. I never thought I would do that, um, which are certainly more engineering-based, but they have historic resource components, and we work on those components. And so it's not what I thought necessarily I would be doing, Um but I'm very grateful that I have been doing it and I've gotten to do things and go to places I never thought I would go. And, uh, so you, you know, it's six of one half dozen of the other, I guess. (laughs) Well, what are some examples of some of your favorite projects that you've worked on? Because you've worked on a lot of award-winning projects. Yeah, I, I have some favorites. Some, I think, tend to think of some of our first projects of a type as favorites. And I'm, I fall into that category my one of my favorite projects was um, a federal tax credit project in Vallejo California that we began working on right when Vallejo famously filed for bankruptcy became the first city in the state of California to file for bankruptcy Um, Vallejo is northern California has great historic resources Uh, it's sort of a preservation by poverty kind of place where there's these this great building stock that just it's been sitting vacant for a long time. And I was able to work with a developer who purchased um, the former Masonic Temple and the former original City Hall. The City Hall was just a very small building, and then the Masonic Temple was the large building, and they were they shared a party wall. They basically uh, shared a block. Um, and uh, they turned the property into um, artist lofts, actually, and uh, their income subsidized rent subsidized apartments Mm -hmm. so the low income affordable housing units uh live work style lofts and it was really a challenging project it was my first tax credit project um which basically means we helped the 
developer navigate the state and the and the National Park Service and the Secretary of the Interior to get a 20% tax credit for the rehabilitation of the buildings, um, which they combined with affordable housing credits to make the project viable. But it was the design turned out great. The rehab elements turned out great. It was really difficult because um, I don't know how many times you've been in a Masonic temple, but they have very large... <laughs> Uh, lodge rooms, multiple usually, even in a smaller area like Vallejo, their Masonic temple has several very large in the middle of the building where you would normally have a light well is just empty space. Uh-huh. But it's also where all the interior historic features are. So it's not like you're just going to put a light court there now, which is what we do in a lot of our hotel projects, let's say in downtown LA, because there's nothing in the middle anymore. So mm-hmm. we just drill a core down the middle. You needed to do something in those space, and they turned them into exhibition space, some rental for dance recitals and things like that. They have stages in them. And then some actually, uh, when you get your unit, and it's now called the Temple Art Lofts, in the Temple Art Lofts you get um, uh, a workshop space essentially in one of the other big empty former lodge rooms. So um, anyway, it was, it, was, it was unique in terms of property type. It was early on in my career, um, still rewarding. It did, and it did win. It did win an award. So it was, <laughs> it was rewarding and awarded. I mean, they've they've cited it as a great early redevelopment project in the city. People love living there. You know, when we would go there to for site visits and construction meetings on site, people would come up to us and ask when they could rent a place in the building. So it's it's just one of those feel good projects. Yeah, I mean, that's nice. I think that your job probably lends itself to a lot of feel-good projects because you are taking a historic building and maybe it's not in the best condition, but rehabbing it and bringing it to a a use that's suitable for our needs now and the future. On the one hand, yes. And we're (laughs) grateful to work on those. On the other hand, a lot of people don't like you too. Everybody (laughs) likes a historic preservation project until they own that historic building. And then they're like, say what now? (laughs) I'm not so interested in preserving this historic building. I would like to demolish the building, please. So uh, we, we get our share of controversy as well. Yes, and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, actually, is as a commissioner and also as somebody who's working on the other side of things, I'm sure a lot of times you're dealing with clients or the general public, and you're not a popular person. (laughs) How do you deal with that? Well, with clients... In the best situations, um, we're giving their. In the best situations, there are experienced developers or government entities, in which um, and 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 or they have good lawyers, good land use attorneys who are very logical, and um, you know you're talking to them on more of a, a logic based um, standpoint. And and our job in those cases, if they don't want the historic property, is to just give them the best advice we can. Uh, you know, and what they can and cannot do or what the hurdles might be if they do want to redevelop the property entirely or maybe make changes that um, the city, state, or federal government may not want to approve. So in that case, you know, we're just calm and logical. We present our case and we give them the best advice we can. That's the essence of my job. I'm a consultant. I advise. um, And my job is to give good advice just like an attorney would mm-hmm. so um or your accountant same kind of thing so in that case that's the approach if they really are unhappy um 
we simply say you're free to seek the peer review of our work by another qualified consultant. If you would like a list, I'll give you a list of other qualified consultants. <laughs> or you can throw a report in the trash and get a new report because, you know, usually it's not public information yet. So the client side of things, we have our great repeat clients. And then if they're newer or newer to the game or, you know, may not like what they hear, um, we just deal with it diplomatically, but maybe sometimes part ways. Uh, from the commission point of view, it is it is interesting. Um, it's a great thing to be involved with. We have a lot of feel-good projects in the community as well in Santa Monica, but we also have a lot of angry people. And we also have um, people who will try to use historic preservation for non-historic preservation intents. So I would say most of the time... When it's particularly contentious, one side or the other of the contentious spectrum is not really interested in historic preservation or not. They're interested in, um, you know, not losing another apartment building, even if it's not really a historic apartment building Mm. or um, they don't like their neighbor. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we, we, we will have people come and character assassinate each other. We uh-huh. will have people come and character assassinate us as commissioners <laughs> if they don't like our our decision. But um, in that case, as chair of the commission, and in just as when I'm not the chair, just as a commissioner, we just try to treat the people with respect. Luckily, at a commission hearing, we have rules of order. People are limited in the amount of time they have uh, to speak. Um and they're not limited in their in their freedom of speech. It is a public meeting, so they can threaten us and do any number of things. But they are they do have a time limit on their threats, and uh, we try to bring the arguments and the emotions out, take them out of the room, and bring everything back to the issues, and just keep reminding people what we actually have jurisdiction over. We can't control if your landlord wants to raise your rent, for example. That's mm. not within our jurisdiction. So it's just reminding people of that, and frankly. Um, Letting it roll off your back if uh, if somebody gets very emotional. We try. We, our job is to be logical and reasoned. We're a quasi judicial body, so we make judgments, and the idea is to do it in the most objective and logical way possible. Well, I, it sounds like you're well suited to this job. I mean, knowing you personally, I think you are a very logical, reasonable person, and you're not going to sugarcoat. Things, but you're also not going to deliver news in a way that's, you know, inflammatory. <laughs> yeah, we try to be to be gentle, and um, like I said, for clients, the the goal is to give the best advice possible. We're not we're not. The confusion is when uh, or the um, emotions are get high when somebody th- mistakes you either for an advocate or an opponent. Mm. If you can steer conversations back to what you actually what the issues really are what you have jurisdiction over and to the fact that you are either in my professional capacity i'm a consultant and i'm here to give you the best advice i can and my advice is that everybody is going to say this is a historic property and you need to change your project Mm. that's the best advice i can give you i'm not here i'm not with the la conservancy or the santa monica conservancy you know i'm not i'm not an advocate um and then on the other side, on the commission, it's to remind them that we can only um, make decisions based on the evidence presented at the hearing. We can only make decisions on certain things based on our rules, based on the laws. So if you can, most most people are reasonable when you remind them of these facts and the emotions subside. 
That's great advice. I think it translates to many professions, (laughs) not just yours. (laughs) And it's good advice to remember. Um, I think that, you know, oftentimes in, in this profession, it is very emotional talking about places and buildings with history and just putting a lot of money into developing something, um, whether it's a house or a huge hotel, um, people are vested and yes, they are. It's part of our communities as well. Yeah. (laughs) So what, what would you say you've learned from being a commissioner then? Well, I've learned a lot more about my own particular community for one thing. I mean, my practice is statewide. I work all over the state of California and I have to learn that means the different laws that apply and ordinances and survey histories and everything of places all over the state. Um, and, uh, you kind of can forget the nuances or the intricacies of your own backyard. And so it keeps me grounded in my community. I had worked in a couple of projects on a couple of projects in Santa Monica before, but to really have to know the laws, um, from our ordinance to the zoning code, to the planning code. I mean, we need to know, Think, you know, to a, what the architectural review board is doing. We need to know what everybody's doing. I, I need to know what the peer is doing because I'm a liaison to the peer board. You really um, get to learn so much about your own community and how um, things get done, you know, how government really works in your own backyard. And it's different everywhere, just as I can say, consulting for other cities. So that's been very valuable to me um, as somebody who's lived in the city for over a decade. I've never felt this you know, closely tied to my plate to place and as well as to the inner workings of the government. And it also does help me with my job. Um, It does help me to remember the nuances from community to community. And it helps on a, a, to remember how important things can be to to a group locally. As a consultant who works all over the state, on things that are, you know, nationalist, everything from a national historic landmark down to a, you know, a ubiquitous craftsman bungalow. Um, we kind of see so much that we might tend to overlook or play down some of the smaller resources out there. But you could go into a community and that's really the last of that resource type they have. But we say, oh, well, yeah, but I saw a dozen last week in Long Beach. Well, okay, but there's only one in Santa Monica. So it helps to give you perspective on scale. And I would just add that also the commission, through the commission, I, I interact with a lot of inspiring people, people who are very passionate, people who do this, you know, show up at meeting after meeting, just, um, they do spend their own free time, you know, showing up at hearings, advocating for things that are important to them. Um, my fellow commissioners are inspiring every, every meeting. So it's, it's an, I think more than even just learning new things, which I do every, every month, every meeting, it's, uh, very inspiring to be around people who are so passionate. That's great. So what advice would you give to someone who is aspiring to become uh, you know, a member on the commission, it, whether it's in Santa Monica or in another city, um, and someone who's interested in pursuing historic preservation. Well, if you're interested in being on a commission in your local city, definitely uh, reach out to your planning department, find out if there are openings <laughs> or when the terms expire, when they know when openings are coming up and nobody likes to see those vacancies sit 
and they do. So that'd be the first thing step is find out what your makeup is of your local commission and how you can be involved. Um, if you are serving on one or aspire to serve on one, the best advice is to always keep an open mind. Um, don't try to, don't get, um, try to keep your emotions out of the decisions you have to make and, um, not to get involved in personal politics. (laughs) Santa Monica is a very big, small town, but I think you could say that. I mean, I work in LA. You can say that about LA too. It's a very big, small town. Um, so there's a lot of personal politics and emotions that can, that happen when you get to the public hearing setting. And so I think it's important to, um, always try to keep an open mind, try to keep that stuff out of it. Don't listen to the background noise so that you can make good decisions. That'd be my advice there. Um, if you are interested in a career in historic preservation, there's lots of different ways to go about that. Um, there are, just in my own firm, we offer so many different services and cater to so many different types of clients that we're actually a little bit unique. Um, firms tend to either be regulatory and work on federally funded projects or be more architecture design related and work on physical projects um, and uh, things like the Vallejo project I mentioned that are uh, tax credits or sector of the interior standards compliance. But we kind of do a little bit of everything or a lot of everything lately. <laughs> We're very busy. Uh, and I think that's a good thing um, to be able to look for some place, either one place where you can try each of the these different types of service areas and the different avenues that are available in historic preservation or to move around a little bit intern a bunch of different places really see that there's kind of breadth to the field it's not we don't just there's not just one thing you can do there's a lot of things and some people find themselves more oriented toward like a large transportation project that takes five years to complete and they're really great planners and you know very organized and this is perfect for them and they get to look at interesting resources you know, the, all of the historic bridges in downtown L.A., for example, are incredible resources that we look at through our transportation projects. It sounds boring until you realize there's some cool stuff out there. Um, or there's people like me who are more oriented to reading plans and, you know, solving problems in terms of design. You know, how are we going to both appease the building department and make sure we don't ruin the historic building. Then there are people who are, you know, more oriented toward that kind of problem solving versus the long-term planning. And there's a million things in between. So I would say first know that there's a lot of options out there. I mean, you could even work in advocacy. Um, you could, there's, there's a lot of ways you could go, but the second thing would be to actually try those things out. I interned for government. I entered for an architecture firm, you know, where I work now. We started out with certain service areas. We brought in some other principles. We expanded into other service areas. So I kind of got a multi-firm experience by staying at the same place as through growth. So try stuff out and see where you, what you actually want to do and what your, where your strengths actually lie and then go that direction. Don't be limited. <laughs> Not in the beginning. I think that's great advice in the profession and in historic preservation. I didn't personally realize there was so much uh, variety within preservation, but now that you mention it, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your firm a little. Um, You mentioned that you, you know, were there and you experienced a lot of the growth and I 
thank you also, uh, were responsible for some of the growth too. Um, how do you feel that, um, how do you feel working in preservation compares to your experience working in an architectural office? And, um, you know, are there lifestyle differences to that too? That's a great question. Um, it is a private practice, so, you know, the hours can be challenging in terms of, um, you know, we're always trying to be billable, just like, <laughs> just like in any firm. So it's, the, the firm aspect of it is similar to architecture firms that I've worked for, you know, unlike the government jobs that I've had that are more nine to five and mm-hmm. no Saturday, no weekends. Um, so in that respect, it's similar. Um, I would say that the the firm I particularly work for promotes a tries to promote a healthy work life balance and tries to not um, necessarily judge their employees or weigh their value based on their billable hours. It's more about quality of work and um, how much you've grow- you personally grow than about you know if the person with the highest billable percentage gets the promotion or the bonus or whatever it is. So that can certainly be different at a bigger firm. Mm -hmm. And we're getting to about midsize now, but when we were with that, but that has stayed the same. And my experience or just from knowing other people who've worked other places, there can be more of an emphasis put on the billable part um, and less on maybe the actual quality of the work at bigger places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know, that's, I guess, and that might just be a perceived difference. It's hard to know that stuff until you get to a mid to a high level to really understand how things are working. Um, but (laughs) no, I mean, I think it's interesting. It sounds ideal that, um, an emphasis would be placed on quality of work rather than billable hours. Um, it makes sense for clients and it makes sense for the people that are employed, um, in ensuring that the work product stays high quality. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, it's a firm and we have deadlines and we have clients and hiccups can occur. And sometimes the only way to get over those hurdles is to work a few long days or things like that. But it is, it is interesting to work for a smaller company in that, you know, at the, if I have to work three really long days, on that the fifth day of that week, I can say, you know, I worked my hours already. I'm not coming in today, <laughs> or I'm coming in for a half day, mm-hmm. or I'll work from home for a half day, and I have the flexibility to do that. So that's that's a really nice lifestyle thing, and because at the end of the day, for us, we're not expecting people to to be billing or logging to their timesheets more than eighty hours in a pay period. Mm-hmm. So if I get my eighty hours, and you know, it's the last Friday of that pay period, then I don't have to work that Friday if I don't want to. If I don't have appointments and meetings, I mean, obviously, there's thing, there's things that have to be done, but I do have the flexibility to say I've worked my billable hours and I'm not expected to work 60 hours a week, only 40, so I can be done now. So right. that's nice. Yeah. That's, yeah, that seems ideal. I mean, I think a lot of millennials and a lot of parents um, or caregivers would really love to have that sort of flexibility yeah we are very appealing to um uh families people with families i think Mm -hmm. caregivers or or, you know yeah whether they're caring for their elderly parents or their 
young children or even pets from time to time. <laughs> you know, if your pet is sick and has to go to the vet, you can take your pet to the vet without taking your valuable PTO. You can just work an hour, sat, you know, an extra hour on the next night or something, you know, <laughs> with our flex time and make it up. And I do think that's just logic too. Sure. You know? I mean, well, I mean, but I've noticed just hanging out in your office, it seems like there are more women there than men. Um, do you think that that's a factor as to why maybe your office, I don't know, attracts more women or? I don't know if it's why we attract more women, but I think it set the culture that um, we're a woman-owned business that was started by a woman. So our company was started by Andrea Galvin, who started uh, as basically a sole practitioner out of her house and then hired a couple employees. And then, you know, fast forward, it snowballed into now we have, I think, at least 35 people in about, I don't know, 12 to 15 years' time. Um, and the, a lot of that growth has just been in within the last five or six years. Um, so I think because the culture started uh, at, with a woman who had two young children who started the company for two reasons. Um, one, you, because she had two small children and it was mm-hmm. hard to work for somebody else, but also because she saw kind of a hole in the market for good consultants. She was had worked uh, in in more of the reviewing side previously and saw bad work coming in and thought I can do good work and Mm -hmm. I can have a better quality of life and probably make more money. And I'm sure that they do then instead of government work. So that was the whole idea when she started the company was to have a better quality of life and do better work. Uh So when you start the company that way, as long as you stay to those values, you pass them on to your employees as you grow. So that's remained a value is that people have a good quality of life and that they have a healthy work-life balance. Before these words were buzzwords, we used these words where I work. Um, So I think it's not that we, um, you know, it's sort of like not a goal to attract more women or anything like that, but I think that it started with a woman has sort of snowballed from there. Um, And now as we've grown, of course, we have we're getting closer to a to a, a, an equal ratio of men to women as we grow. But I do think that uh, women may be attracted um, if they either have children or look down the line because they know that we're not, you know, we're not having people punch in and punch out necessarily. We're not, you know, micromanaging. We have flex time. We have a 980 schedule, which people take advantage of. We have a lot of new moms who will stay with us after they will, they will come back after having children and stay with us because we will let them work whatever hours they want in the beginning. If they only want to work 30 hours a week, that's fine. They can work 30, you know, there's no Mm -hmm. like, Nope, if you're not 40 hours, you know, right. Find something else. Um, so I think we may attract more women because we're accommodating. Uh Um, but I really think it's just, it's just, goes back to the genesis and the reason that the company was started in the first place. Yeah, no, it sounds like it really started from this great place and it has continued on. And I can see that I don't work there, but when I have dropped by, I can see that for sure. Um, I think it's very impressive that, you know, women are coming back after giving birth and not feeling stigmatized that they're not putting in their full hours. Or, right, no, there's definitely none of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I can say, and I don't have children myself, but 
Um, I am in a managerial capacity and have had people who work on projects of mine and things like that who have families and there is no, I mean, there's definitely no, it's, it's the opposite of that. I think it's more like when you're ready, we're, we'd love to have you full time because you're <laughs> such a great employee, but you got to do what you got to do. Right. You know? That's amazing. Yeah. So do, what you talked about managing, um, being more of a, in a managerial role these days. Um, what would you say your management style is? I am definitely not a micromanager. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think I like to think I'm very supportive without micromanaging. So I like to be there as much as possible, but I also like to keep, I like to physically be in the office as much as possible. It's hard with meetings and things like that. Um, so that I'm always there for questions and that you can always ask me questions and it doesn't matter how dumb the question instead of me asking you a million questions like what all did you do today and how are you going to do that? And you know what I mean? (laughs) I would prefer to have the questions come to me. I usually like to do a a fair amount of work up front and set things up, sort of answer some of the questions, but not necessarily give people the answers. I just know what the answers are because I've done, you know, my fair share of hours of prep work that I would normally do if I were doing the project myself. But then walk through things with whoever I'm assigning the project to, you know, kind of give them a little laundry list of the tasks that I would normally do if I were doing this, but always with the open door of, if you think, if you know of a better or faster way, especially because you're younger and probably a millennial (laughs) to do this, please tell me what it is and do it that way Uh with a, you know, efficiency is always good. So I like to think that I'm available that I am friendly, <laughs> that I am, you know, get projects organized so that other people can take ownership of them. I like to check in, you know, on things, depending on the length of the project, really no more than a couple times a week. I like to give people freedom to figure things out. I like to give them freedom to fail um, and come and say, oops, I, and then we fix it together. Um, that's the way I prefer to operate. I don't like to... Um, micromanage tasks or, you know, schedules or things like that. I like to have employees I can trust and then they can trust me. Yeah, that's a good point because I think that that management style probably works very well for certain types of self-motivated people, for example. Right. Um, you know, what happens if you get someone who's pretty shy Yeah. or doesn't, isn't very, you know, engaged with the work? Um, yeah. That can happen. I mean, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. Um, uh, Partly my style comes from the fact that when I started, there were very few people around. We had a very small group, and a few of us all started at the same time, and we would troubleshoot things together because, frankly, the people in charge were out trying to get more work. We were a young company with not a lot of work. So their focus is on going out and getting the work less so on managing projects. So we all became very young project managers, you know, maybe too young, kind of a sink or swim type of thing. And I feel like I learned so much so fast that way, mm-hmm. but sink or swim is not for everybody. Um, so we try, I try to, to be in between. It's definitely, I'm definitely, it's, there's definitely a lot of support there, a lot of answering, a lot of laying things out, Big, I like to talk a lot of big picture stuff. I don't like to just give 
Even if it's a summer intern who's going to be there three months, I don't like to give them a task. Mm-hmm. I like to sit with them for an hour and tell them all about the Section 106 process so that they know why I'm asking them to do this one mundane task. <laughs> but I think it helps. I think it helps for the shy people. Uh, I think it probably bores some people, and that's fine. I don't mind being boring. <laughs> um, but if, you're, if you are shy or you are intimidated... Um, I think it helps because you develop a warmth or like a comfort level, you know, with the material or you feel like you fit into a bigger, a bigger, I don't know, not, I don't want to use a bad business analogy, not wheel. <laughs> I don't know. You feel like you fit into a bigger part of an important process. Right. What you're doing matters. Yeah. So if you're not particularly self-motivated, that can help. Or if you're very shy, I think the time investment up front helps. People feel more comfortable asking questions. But sometimes it just doesn't work. Either somebody isn't self-motivated enough. And I'm not the only person you know, who's in a higher-level position at my firm who also operates the same way. We do have six-month probationary periods when schedules are less flexible and... Um, you know, by and large, we have a t- we have a good interview process. I think that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Really, like the the way you screen people, because um, you get a lot of applicants and it's not easy, and a lot of them are qualified on paper. Right. So, looking for somebody who seems like they are not afraid to, for example, if somebody's not doesn't isn't afraid to ask me a question in an interview, when they may or may not, you know, it, it may or may not impact whether they get a job. They're probably not going to be afraid to ask me a question when we're working on a project together. Right. Do you think that you're maybe a natural born leader or is this something that you've worked on? I don't think I'm a natural born leader. Um, I'm actually very much an introvert, despite the fact that I force myself into these positions (laughs) of like public speaking and things like that. They stress me out enormously. I get anxiety and like I'll go home and like replay everything that I said at a commission meeting or something and not sleep for the whole night. Because that's like, and that is an introvert, or I'll be like exhausted because I had to talk um, to strangers for a while at a party or something. You know, I'm I'm an introvert. I think most born leaders are extroverts, you know, politicians and things like that. But um, I think I'm more of a control freak. I like being in control. I like making decisions on a project. You know, I like, you know, deciding which way we're going to go, if there's ways to decide. Uh And, um, and I'm pretty good at that. And uh-huh. it's more that than being a born leader. It's the ability to make decisions is not something that I lack. Mm-hmm. I can make decisions, hopefully good decisions quickly and move things forward. And if you're a person who has that ability, I think you end up in positions of leadership. And then if you like the people around you, um, you want to be, you know, you want to be part of, you want to be part of their collaborative team, whether you're the in the charge or not. But I think it's more that, I like doing good work and I'm making and doing it efficiently and making quick decisions. And <laughs> yeah, and I think it's something I've always admired about you is that you can make decisions quickly and effectively and then be very confident about them. And I think maybe Sometimes. <laughs> well, seem very confident yeah. about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the rational side of you as well where you're you're really able to you know, ration something down and make it logical right. and then stand by that. Um, I, I admire that about you. Thank you. <laughs> you have to just be careful. You don't ration down to pessimism. That's my flaw. I'd say <laughs> you got to keep the dreamer part. Oh, well, speaking of dreams, then, um, how do you motivate yourself to achieve at such a high level? 
Well, motivation has fluctuated over the years. (laughs) (laughs) When you reach more of a midpoint, I guess that's really natural. Um, I like doing good work. And I think what motivates me is interesting projects. So it's not so much, it's, it's like a carrot on a stick, I guess, you know, (laughs) when I started, we were small, we didn't have the most interesting projects. We had what we could get. We're hungry. You need to get, take what you can get. But the more you do that, if you do a really good job, the better projects you get. It just happens. I mean, it sounds fluffy, but it's not. That actually does happen. Mm -hmm. If you take crappy projects and you do a really good job at them, you you that is a building block. And you never know where the person you did the crappy project for is going to end up someday, and they're going to want to hire you because you you did a good job. So doing a really good job motivates me. And then I found that doing a really good job so that I can get a cooler, interesting project motivates me now that I'm at a different point in my career. Yes, I have to take the bread and butter work, but, you know, if I get an RFP or something across my desk and it's something really cool that could be really fun or like a very important landmark property or something like that, that is a motivating factor for me. I want to win that project and Mm -hmm. then I want to do a good job because I want them to hire me again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sound advice. So it's a carrot, it's a carrot, it's the carrot on the stick for sure for me. In front of the horse. I'm the horse. (laughs) Chasing that carrot. Well, I mean, I think that you've achieved so much. Would you say that you're successful? Do you feel successful? (laughs) Uh, It depends on the day. (laughs) Sometimes I feel successful. Sometimes I feel like I have either achieved a lot or I've, you know, given a lot to my career or whatever. And other times I'm like, I'm such a lazy piece of, you know, garbage. <laughs> I should do so much more. You know, I should be involved in this. I should be involved in that. I should, you should, should, should. Wow. What are these other things you should be oh, involved in? I should be, in? you know, like giving speeches at the, you know, whatever. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's just depends on the day. I think I'm more, I feel more grateful than I feel successful. Oh, that's a nice statement. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I've had a lot of opportunities. I've tried to take advantage of them. And instead of piling on myself for feeling like I should have done this other thing or, you know, whatever right. it might be, um, I just try to be grateful that I've had the opportunities I've had and proud of myself if I made the most of them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's often a trap that high achieving driven people get into is not feeling like they've done enough or, you know, always looking for that next rung to get to, but sometimes we just need to stop and appreciate what we have. And, you know, careers are long, you know, you kind of forget that, like, if you're going to stay in the same profession for your career, that's 30 plus years, you know, I mean, 40, I mean, and that's if you retire at like 67 or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And most people won't. Mm -hmm. So, Careers are long, and to think that you could actually be super high achieving or, you know, consistently kind of chugging along at the same speed doesn't really make a lot of sense. Sometimes you need, like, I feel like I've gotten to a point where I was really involved in a while. In fact, I thought I was losing some gusto for my career a couple of years ago. So my solution was to actually over-involve myself in things, like to mm. do more, to do more both at the office, to 
get on the commission, for example, those types of things. Um, and it, it did definitely, like I said, I feel I get, you know, these bursts of more inspiration by these very inspiring people I'm around and I'm very rewarded by the things I've engaged in. But uh, at the same time, I'm now feeling burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 10 years in with the same place and at the same firm and doing, although it's changed drastically since I started, it's still, there's this feeling of, you know, the same sameness about it, but like, it's okay. Like I don't need to now, like I said, I should, should, should be involved in the (laughs) California preservation foundation and Los Santa Monica conservancy. And like, I don't need to be going to a board meeting every night of the week. Mm -hmm. Maybe for a while I can just do a really good job with the things I'm already committed to (laughs) instead of looking for new commitments. And then, you know, in a few years from now, I will want different commitments. So, but it's, sure. it's, and that's okay. So we have to remember careers are long. You'd <laughs> <laughs> be, we'd all be exhausted if we, you know, went yeah. at the same pace all the time, sometimes fast, sometimes slow and just enjoy the work you're doing, you know? Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Well, is there anything else you would like to, um, say to our listeners? I don't think so. I, like I said, I'm grateful. I look forward to whatever change, you know, whatever comes down the line and careers are long. (laughs) (laughs) Parting words. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our very first episode of the XXLA Architects podcast. You can find us online at www.xx-la.com or you can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at XXLA Podcast. Please subscribe and share this show with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, and thank you for your support.